Well, this evening is the uh, last in our series on, stu- on sermons on Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, I hope you've found the series helpful uh, in finding your way around this period of Israel's history. It's a period that uh, many Christians aren't just as confident about or as familiar with the whole return from the exile. Uh, and I hope you found the engagement with the books of Ezra and Nehemiah helpful right from the very first evening when the young people from Clay in a very memorable way, introduced us to that whole period of uh, the history of what was going on with God's people and also some very important lessons from that about God himself. Uh, the title I was given for this evening was simply the title of Nehemiah's View of God. And this is the final in the series that we're going to be looking at. Uh, and I want to base what I have to say this evening about Nehemiah's view of God on one text which is taken from chapter 1. There's a lot you could glean as you work the whole way through uh, the text. There's the book, there's 14 different chapters, but I, I would feel that you will find that all the things that are reflected are uh, wonderfully summarized and captured in a little phrase that occurs uh, in chapter 1 of the book of Nehemiah. So I'd like us to read this chapter together. You'll find it on page 485 of the copy of the Bible that's in the pew. Um, and it's Nehemiah chapter 1, and I'll just read uh, the chapter. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there. And bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. The text that I want to base what I want to say this evening on is verse 5 of chapter 1 in Nehemiah. As we think about Nehemiah's view of God. I want to break it down into four separate phrases which are there in the text and for us to think about them. 
The first one is the reference to Lord. Um, if you're following in the New International Version, in fact in most contemporary versions, you'll notice that the word Lord appears uh, in capital letters. And uh, sometimes the word Lord is translated in the Old and New Testament as uh, a capital L and then ordinary lowercase letters. But frequently, as in this case, you will see that it's set in capitals. And it's a subtle but significant difference. If you've never taken time to read the preface to the New International Version, most people open the first few pages of the Bible and think, oh my goodness, what are all, what's all that about? But if you, if you take time to have a look at the preface, you'll discover that um, the translators make a very conscious choice here. That when the divine name, uh, commonly referred to as Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, is referred to, in the text, it's translated Lord in capitals. When it's the more common term, Adonai, for Lord, then it's translated in lowercase. And it's an important distinction because it gives us an indication of the terminology that is being used about God. Now, they talk about the divine name. What do they mean by the divine name? Well, if you go back to page 59 of the copies of the Bible that you have there, Uh, In Exodus chapter 3, you'll see quite clearly what the the significance of this is. In Exodus chapter 3, we have the account of the Lord appearing to Moses in the burning bush. And Moses is obviously uh, really taken by what is happening here. He comes uh, closer and uh, he then finds that uh, God speaks to him. And verse 6 of chapter 3 God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. And if you go down to verse 14 of the passage, Moses has said to God, Okay, well, if I go and talk to the people and say you have sent me, who do I say has sent me? And God said to Moses, Um, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Um, In verse uh, 15, Moses is concerned you know, who will I tell them sent me? What is your name? What is the name that is going to carry weight with these people? And God reveals his name, as it were, uh, to Moses and identifies himself clearly as the Lord, as Yahweh. To get the significance of Nehemiah opening his prayer using this term Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, We need to just remember something about Nehemiah's background and where he is at this particular time. The year is approximately around 445-447 BC. Uh, And Nehemiah himself is over here in Susa, which is a very, very long way away from Jerusalem. But he's not only very far removed from Jerusalem in geographic terms, he's also quite far removed from it uh, in terms of years. 
because it's been a long time, about 90 years really, since the first of the Jewish exiles began the return back to rebuild the temple of God. And about 70 years before that was the beginning of the exile to this part of the world when they were under the judgment of God and carried away by the Babylonians. And the significance is that Nehemiah is very much a child of the captivity. He's quite a number of generations removed from those who once lived back in Jerusalem before judgment fell and they were exiled. And Nehemiah has adapted very well to his Persian culture which is very obvious from the office that he holds. If you noticed the last little phrase in Nehemiah chapter 1, I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah dresses and speaks, and to some degree, I'm sure, thinks like a successful Persian. No doubt his family are well-connected in government and society. But the significant thing is this, that although geographically he is very far removed from Jerusalem, and although in terms of generations, it's been he's generations removed from those who went up to the temple to worship there uh, before God and to hear the law being read, he thinks in biblical terms. He thinks of God in terms of scripture and how God is revealed in scripture. So this man may reflect the culture in which he lives, in the way he dresses, in the way he speaks, in his role in society. But his knowledge of God, his view of God, is shaped by scripture. This man might walk among temples of pagan gods, but he only knows one God who has revealed himself to Moses as, I am the Lord Yahweh. That distinctive term, that distinctive name that was given to God's people by God himself to demonstrate who he was in his covenant relationship with Abraham and with his people and his faithfulness to them. The Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God who remembered his people when in slavery in Egypt. So at the very opening of this, it's very clear that Nehemiah's view of God is shaped by scripture. It's interesting that the second phrase you'll see in verse 5 is the phrase God of heaven. It's another very interesting phrase because unlike the term Yahweh or Lord, it's largely unknown in the Bible. You find it twice in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 24, which is quite interesting. Genesis chapter 24 is where Abraham is commissioning his servant to go and find a wife for his son Isaac. And you may remember that he commissions him to go back to the land of his fathers to find uh, a wife for his son. He doesn't want someone taken from the nations around him. And if you remember where that was, although that incident in Genesis 24 is taking place around here, He's sending him back to this region because that's originally where Abraham comes from. And as he sends him back, he uses this phrase, uh, the God of heaven, when he's talking to a servant about going back to find a wife uh, for Isaac. The phrase doesn't really appear again uh, in chronological terms in history until Jonah uses it. And Jonah uses it around 720 BC when he's explaining to a bunch of very frightened pagan sailors why it seems like their ship is about to sink and why they're caught in the middle of a great storm and why it looks like they're all about to drown. And he explains to them that the God of heaven had sent them on an errand and he's running away from them and that's why they're all in trouble. And apparently this term, the God of heaven, was a fairly common term in Near Eastern religions uh, to describe the supreme God. 
And interestingly, that the supreme God in many of these religions was the God who controlled the seas. So Jonah knows that Yahweh sent him, he knows that, but he describes Yahweh, the God of Israel, in terms the sailors will understand. So he uses the phrase, the God of heaven. The phrase doesn't appear again until it's used by Daniel when he's in captivity. And where is Daniel when he's in captivity? He is, of course, here. And when he's speaking to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2 and explaining the vision and encouraging his friends to pray for him that God will give him the meaning of the vision, the phrase that he uses when he refers to God is the God of heaven. And the phrase next appears when it's been used by Cyrus in Ezra chapter 1 to describe how the God of heaven had put it in his heart to send people back to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And all the other occurrences of this phrase, the God of heaven, occur in Ezra and Nehemiah. This term, the God of heaven, is not a Jewish term. It's not a biblical term in the same way in which the term Lord or Yahweh is, as God reveals himself to Moses. It's a term that was used by the peoples of the area in which um, Nehemiah finds himself and grew up. So what's going on here? Is this the old idolatry of incorporating pagan notions of God into along with the God of Israel? No, I don't think it's that at all. I think it is simply that people like Daniel and Nehemiah and even Abraham who have a knowledge, uh, who are working among people who have a knowledge that there is a supreme God, even if they do not know who he is, use the terminology that is there to speak of God as supreme, as all-powerful and glorious. It's a similar kind of thing to what happened to the Apostle Paul in Athens. You remember Paul was in Athens, and as he's going around, he finds an altar amongst all these altars to the unknown God. And he then tells them who this unknown God is. It seems to be a similar kind of thing. Abraham, Jonah, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah. They all use a term which which describes the supreme glory of God, the transcendence of God, his sovereignty, his unmatchable glory. In language that makes sense to their pagan neighbours and those around them. They've engaged and used the language of their culture in describing and addressing God where it's appropriate. They've conjured up a sense of the greatness and the vastness of God using terminology borrowed from a different culture. So Nehemiah's view of God is shaped by scripture, but also expressed in contemporary terminology where it helps to communicate the greatness and supreme glory of God. Nehemiah uses two other phrases in that verse 5. He uses this phrase, Um, The great and awesome God. The first use of this phrase uh, comes from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7. You might like to look at it. It's on page 186 of the copies of the Bibles in the pew. Um, The context here is the restatement of the Ten Commandments and the instruction to God's people to occupy the land and not to be afraid of the nations that are already resident in Cana. They are a community of people who are not really equipped For war, they don't have experience of it. They're a slave nation. Uh, And the challenge and the encouragement for them is to trust in God who not only has delivered them out of Egypt, but will deliver into their hands the land that he has promised to them. And we can get a little bit of the context in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 7, uh, where the people are being told the Lord 
did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And if you go down to verse 17, it reads as follows. You may say to yourselves, these nations are stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? But do not be afraid of them. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the miraculous signs and wonders, the mighty hand and outstretched arm with which the Lord your God brought you out. The Lord your God will do the same to all the peoples you now fear. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them until even the survivors who hide from you have perished. Do not be terrified by them, for the Lord your God who is among you is a great and awesome God. For a man who grew up living in exile at the heart of what was then the world's greatest empire, in a remarkable way, he continues to hold the conviction that the God of Israel, Israel in all its puny weakness and shame, is the great and awesome God. The term itself is fairly explanatory. There's nothing hidden in the language. Yahweh, the God of heaven, is the great and awesome God. He has no equal. He is to be feared and respected in his glory and power. He is the God who can vanquish Pharaoh. He is the God who can outdo the gods of Egypt. He is the God who came to the rescue of his people after 400 years. He is the God who parted the Red Sea when it was necessary. He is the God who can sort out the nations. And Nehemiah doesn't hesitate to address God in these terms, even though he lives his life as a child, a product of Israel's shame and weakness before the nations. Nehemiah believes that the God who has revealed himself in Scripture, the God who is supreme, is still the God who can deliver his people, even in their weakness. It's interesting, Nehemiah has such a high view of the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, that he's not overwhelmed by the power, the grandeur, the glory of the Persian court and empire. He's not tempted to sing the praises of the gods of the nation of which he is part And for all the glory that he sees around him, which must have been impressive, his heart is firmly with Yahweh. He's not overwhelmed by anything or anyone. Only Yahweh, Israel's God. And the fourth phrase that's used in verse 5 of Nehemiah chapter 1 is a term which really, or a sense which really speaks of the covenant faithfulness of God. Who... uh, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. God had established his covenant with Abraham. He honored that covenant when he appears to Moses to fulfill the promise to deliver his people. He honored that covenant when Israel found herself under judgment and going into exile. He always honored the covenant and the terms of the covenant. And Nehemiah's view of God is shaped by God's faithfulness to his covenant and his promise as he has seen it at work in history. As he recounts and thinks about the story of his people's journey and he reflects that in his prayer that we read together. He sees not only despair and misfortune but the solid dependency of God in his faithfulness in keeping the terms of the covenant that he made with his people. So he can be confident of God's redeeming 
restoring love for his people if they will return to him. And it's this knowledge that informs his prayer of confession that we read in verses 7 to 9. Nehemiah's understanding of God has been shaped by scripture. And he's also paid attention to the words of the prophets. Because essentially the prophets were preachers of the covenant. Much of what they said was not based on merely private revelation given to them by God, but it was based on taking the terms of the covenant that God had made with Moses and with his people and explaining it to them and saying, this is what we agreed to. This is what the terms of the relationship were. And this is why there will be judgment if we continue in the way in which we're going. And Nehemiah has reflected on all of that. He has listened to the prophets and he has interpreted the circumstances of God's people accordingly. And as a consequence, his view of God is strong and covenantal. Where there was faithfulness and judgment, there will be faithfulness and restoration. And all will be exercised in the context of God's faithful love for his people. So here we have four key terms which give us an insight into Nehemiah's view of God. The way in which he addresses God in verse 5, which underpins everything that will take place in the unfolding story of Nehemiah. The Lord, Yahweh, the God who revealed himself to Moses and to his people, revealed in scripture. The God of heaven, using contemporary language to speak of God who is supreme and sovereign. The great and awesome God, taking that language of Deuteronomy to speak about the God who is powerful and active on behalf of his people. The covenant-keeping God, the God who is supremely faithful. As we reflect on Nehemiah's view of God and how he came to hold it, I think it raises a number of challenges and questions for us. first one is this. Who shapes your view of God? I was reading an article in one of the national newspapers during the week, and it quoted a report which had been Uh, published some time ago called A Covenant for the Church of England in which the following comment was made The Church of England is increasingly polarised into two churches one submitting to God's revelation gospel focused Christ centred cross shaped and spirit empowered the other holding a progressive view of revelation giving priority to human reason over scripture shaped primarily by Western secular culture and focused on church structures. Now, without getting into all the details of the context in which this report was written, it is a very interesting comment. And I think it applies not just to the Church of England. The fact of the matter is that today, one group of Christians can have a theology that is scripture-based. In other words, in which scripture is the lens through which we view the world around us and what is happening. Another group of Christians can have a theology that is essentially culturally based. In other words, culture is the lens through which we read scripture. The significant thing about Nehemiah's view of God is that even in a non-Jewish and in a religiously unsympathetic culture, Nehemiah's view of God was shaped by scripture, such as it was in his time. He interpreted his world and God's role in his world through scripture, not the other way around. Now, how is our view of God shaped? And who's doing the shaping? Which is the loudest voice when you are thinking about the nature of God and who God is? Is it scripture or is it culture? 
If your view of God lacks a sense of the awe and the glory of God, as Nehemiah had sensed it and grasped it, then it's quite likely that it's not scripture that shapes your view of God, but culture, a culture of self that is shaping your view of God. Now, as you'll see in a minute, I'm not advocating um, a fundamentalist disengagement from our culture, but I am asking the question, who speaks more loudly into your life and understanding? The spirit of the age or scripture? It's a very critical issue. You can, I mean, you can ask questions of Scripture, you can struggle with Scripture, but once you go beyond Scripture in seeking to know who God is and what God's purposes for you are, then you're in trouble. And for that reason, the Bible needs to constantly be a central part of our lives and our worship as Christians. The second challenge for me that this... uh, Reflection on Nehemiah's view of God raises is this question simply, how big is your God? Nehemiah's reference to the God of heaven and the great and awesome God make it clear that whether he was using contemporary terminology or biblical terminology, he was convinced that God was sovereign and all-powerful. Nehemiah was obviously a very, very able individual. He could not have held the very high office in the king's court that he held, a very highly trusted position, unless he was a very able individual. However, it's clear that the desire to see the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt and the capacity to undertake that task was founded upon his confidence in what God could do rather than what he could organize. Brilliant man, as no doubt he was. If our view of God is shaped by culture or merely our own subjective experience we will end up with a very small God and the smaller our concept of God the less confidence courage and ambition we will have for the cause of God and the kingdom of God in the world and one of the things that will mark this church and any church in its future is not its organizational ability, it's not the skill set within its members, it's not its numbers and it's not its financial strength. It will be important to use all these things wisely and well as Nehemiah demonstrates. It's a great model of how to use skills and resources in the work of God. But in spiritual terms, ultimately, the future achievements of any church, any group of Christians, will be determined by the confidence its people have in a God who is sovereign and powerful. And it's only when such a God is at the heart and center of church life and thinking that a church will see real development and growth. And the third question this raises for me this evening is simply this question. How confident are you in God? Nehemiah had great confidence in God's faithfulness as a covenant-keeping faithful God. Certainly, that is, in regard to God's dealing with the people as a nation, he had great confidence. But I can't help wondering how much confidence he had in regard to how God viewed him as an individual. One of the questions we have to ask ourselves as we read a book like Nehemiah is, is everything that Nehemiah seems to say about God actually right? Are there any points at which when you're reading scripture and you're reading the text that it's right to say, well, that person at that point maybe didn't have quite the right grasp of God or something. 
Because sometimes we read uncritically uh, the words of Scripture. Nehemiah was a remarkable man and a remarkable man of faith. But let me take you just to a couple of other things that are recorded for us in Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 5, you just turn over a few pages. Nehemiah chapter 5 is the account of Nehemiah's social conscience and concern for his people and putting right a lot of injustice that was going on among the nation. And he, he, makes, them, he makes those who are wealthy and powerful repent of the way they're exploiting the poor in their midst. And when he has finished all that, verse 19, at the end of chapter 5, he says, Remember me with favor, O my God, for all I have done for these people. And if you go on over to chapter 13, you find that as you're coming to the end of Nehemiah's reflections and all the things that have been happening and the way in which he made some additional reforms, in chapter 13 and verse 14, he says, Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. And look at what he says in verse 22. Remember me for this also, O my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. And look at the very last words of Nehemiah's letter. Remember me with favor, O my God. Nehemiah's confidence in God's faithfulness to his people was absolutely rock solid. You see that in the way in which he encouraged them, and the way in which he undertook the task, the way in which he came back to carry out reforms. He knew that God would keep his faithful promises to his people, the nation. I'm not sure that personally Nehemiah was necessarily just so secure in his relationship with God. These remember me passages clearly indicate a link between his work for God and his hope that God will not forget him, that God will not overlook him. Is there an insecurity there? That despite all he had done, he might be left out on a limb, he might be overlooked? Did the culture of Persia actually have some kind of influence in his thinking at the end of the day? Did the pagan religion in which he moved all his life affect him at times more than he realized? Is it just that at the end of his life, he's reflecting and wondering if his work would last and stand the test of time, realizing that people were fickle and they could rebel again and the cycle of judgment and exile could happen again? And If so, where would that leave him? It is possible that his confidence of God's faithfulness to his nation, his people, Israel, did not necessarily extend to assurance for him as an individual. Now, whatever the situation with Nehemiah, and different people have different theories on this, my question this evening is, how is it with you? Christians can be very eager in the work of the church, the kingdom of God generally, and still be very insecure. Christians can have a very clear theological understanding and be very articulate theologically, but can be very shaky when it comes to the nature of their own relationship with God and where they stand before God, particularly in difficult times. Now, Nehemiah didn't have as much to go on as we have, and I'm not for one minute criticizing him, and I wouldn't dream of doing that. 
It would be wrong to try and read Nehemiah in the same terms in which you should read about a New Testament believer because he didn't have as much as we have. We not only have the witness of the whole of the Old Testament and God's covenant-keeping love for his people to reassure us, we also have the cross and the resurrection. As the writer of the Hebrews says, that means we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. In other words, there's no uncertainty left for us as Christians. Jesus has gone right into the place of judgment and taking our place and right into the place of the Holy of Holies, where he belongs, at the right hand of the Father, pleading our name. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, in the light of the gospel, what then shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And who can bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't think that Nehemiah's remember me prayers undermine his integrity as a believer in God. I think they express the limitations in which he worked and understood things. But there are no such limitations in us. We get to see a much bigger picture because we get to see the cross and the resurrection. We get to be part of a new covenant, a new covenant sealed in Christ's blood. Ours is the great gift of confidence, of acceptance in Jesus Christ, not because of the effort we put in to the work of the church or the cause of the kingdom, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on our behalf at the cross. How confident are you in God? How confident are you that God accepts you as you are in all your weakness and in all your failure? How confident are you that knowing you through and through as he did, Jesus Christ went to the cross on your behalf, the person that you are? For all the depth of Nehemiah's understanding and view of God, there just seems to be an area in there which is a little grey. There's no reason for us to live with that greyness. We see so much more. We know so much more. Nehemiah's view of God. The God who reveals himself as Yahweh, the Lord. The God who is supreme and sovereign, the God of heaven. The great and awesome God who is powerful and active for his people. The covenant-keeping, faithful God. So who shapes your view of God? 
the world around you or the word of God? And how big is your God? Is he shaped by the limitations of your own mind and your own faith? Or is he the God of the Old Testament faithfulness, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of resurrection? And how confident are you in him? Challenges that come to us as we think of Nehemiah's view of God.